0: Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God.
1: This morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 8, and... Chapter 7 was awesome. It took two Sundays to actually go through it. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 gives more detail, Daniel's vision, than King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, but it's along the same lines. Daniel was taken captive in Babylon. There were successive kingdoms after the Babylonian kingdoms. And uh, chapter 8 is a little bit different in that There's really, first of all, the writing. Daniel wrote in Aramaic or Chaldee when he was in Babylon because that's what everybody spoke up there. And in chapter 8, he changes from Aramaic back to Hebrew because it was very important for the Jewish people to understand what was going on in here. So in chapter 8, you see successive kingdoms, but you also see things that will affect the Jewish people in general in their day and also many years later in our future. Antiochus Epiphany would come by, and we know the Hanukkah story is based on his harassment of the Jews and then them taking the temple back. Um, he's a type of the Antichrist. Uh, chapter 8 speaks about the coming Antichrist in our future. First John tells us that there are many who, why you would want to do this, it's really demonic, but there were many leaders and dictators over time who took characteristics of the Antichrist. But this is very important because even Jesus... This is a strong warning to the Jewish people, especially when the church is raptured in our future and basically Israel and the Jewish saints really take center stage. They need to be very careful of this leader who's going to mesmerize so many. And Jesus even said to the religious leaders of of his day, and it's really a clarion call to all the Jewish leadership from his day forward. He said in John 5.43, he says, I come in my father's name. One will come, meaning the Antichrist, in his own name, he says, You don't receive me, but one will come in his own name, and him you will receive. Now, what does it mean for the church? We'll talk about that. What does it mean for us? You know, when I get done with my messages, I pretty much prepare everything, and then I just go online and just see what other people are saying. Maybe I missed something here and there. And it was funny because I went on, I believe it was Bible.org, about Daniel chapter 8. And the first line the guy says is, Daniel 8 is a preacher's nightmare. (laughs) So I'm like, whoa, you got my attention. It's difficult. Um, Even if we learn it and we know it really well as pastors and Bible teachers, the the key is to convey it to the body. Don't assume they know something and skip over it. And don't assume they don't know something and, you know, teach too low in a sense. So we're going to go in and we'll check it out and see what the Lord has for us. So, Chapter 8, starting with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, now this is of Babylon, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no beast could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. So the ram. Now again, this is written some 2,500 years ago. It foretells the Medo-Persians rising up, to take over from Babylon, and remember when Daniel was speaking he's still in Babylon under control of the Babylonian rulers. The Babylonian gates, they're still there in Iraq, you can, you can look at pictures of them. Uh, some areas of the gates were 300 feet high. They thought they were impregnable, but God had other plans. Why does Daniel now, as he's going through this vision or the vision dispensed with Babylon, because in the third year of Belshazzar, Babylon's done. Babylon is is history. They just don't know it yet. The Medo-Persians are literally at the gate, and Babylon collapses, and we saw that in chapter 4. So if you want to look at the image, I have two images that we put up for instruction. This was a good, I found this, this was a good picture, and it kind of gives you uh, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 2. And basically you see the successive kingdoms. The Babylonian kingdom in Daniel 2 is the head of gold the lion in Daniel 7. However, in Daniel 8, we have, okay, the chest and, and, and arms and shoulders of silver, the bear in Daniel 7, and the ram in Daniel 8. There is no corresponding beast for Babylon because she's done. All right, so it's very interesting. The, Greece, the Grecian Empire, the leopards, four-headed leopard with the four wings, and then the, the, the he-goat that we're going to read of, uh, and we'll, we'll look at this. But basically, if now if we go to the map, the other side, okay, you can see some, some names that we've been covering through this book of prophecy. Okay, the United States is over here somewhere. You know? And in latter times, in the end times, we're really not even a thought in God's prophecy, and that could be for a lot of reasons that I covered. But basically, everything's going to happen here again. Here's Israel, here's Jerusalem, Judah, here was the Assyrian Empire... Here's the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, Media was up here, Lydia, Greece is over here. We could keep that up for a little bit. Uh, and what you see is here's Babylon and here's Susa. Okay? Why is that significant? Because Susa, or Shushan, becomes the capital of the Persian Empire. Remember, Daniel seeing things in the future. So Daniel is transported in his visions whether in the body or not, like the Apostle Paul said. Maybe he doesn't know, maybe we don't know. But he is able to see what's going on in this, in this capital in the future. Now remember, Ezekiel the prophet was also transported by God. There was no social media back then. So God had to be creative in what he did and how he got his point across. There was no FaceTime, there was no satellites. So this is the way he did things. Ezekiel the prophet was taken away from where he was and transported uh, John the Apostle in the book of Revelation was taken in many different places and shown things by the angel, pretty much giving him a tour. The second thing we see that is that the ram was pushing west, north, and south. Okay, So the Persian Empire pushes west, takes over Babylon, remember? Uh, it pushes north to Lydia, takes over Lydia, and it pushes. it ends up going southwest to Egypt. These are general terms that the scripture is speaking of. And Cyrus the Persian is this, this federal head of the Persian Empire. And this is all, you can go home, take what I say, go, go to your history books and find out the book of Daniel was written before history. And then history was written after history. So Daniel gives us a, a glimpse of what's going on before it even takes place. And this is how you know it's God's word. Cyrus, this great Persian leader, uh, the Bible talked about him before he was even born in Isaiah 41. I'll read Isaiah 45.1. One verse. Now remember, this was written 150 years before Cyrus, this conqueror, was even born. It says in Isaiah 45.1, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings. We can really take this and apply it to Babylon. To open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. This is amazing. This is before... Babylon became what they thought was impregnable, they had their mighty doors, their mighty gates that they had, uh, the city built on the Euphrates River. And he's already saying in Isaiah that this guy's going to come up, he's going to be born, he's going to grow up and he's going to be a leader." Pretty impressive. Uh, in Isaiah 44:28, it says, "God refers to uh, Cyrus, this leader, as his shepherd. He achieves his purposes. He beats the Babylonians when they become extremely decadent and he returns the Jews to their homeland. This is amazing, even in Ezra 1, 5 through 11. So check it out, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon before he becomes a man of God, conquers Jerusalem, conquers Judah, destroys the temple, takes the Jews captive, takes all the gold and silver because gold and silver back then was important. So they, they, they stole it, they hoarded it, they brought it all the way to Babylon. Here the Persian king Cyrus comes, beats Babylon. God softens him and other successive leaders their hearts towards the Jews, and they not only let the Jews go back under their dominion to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, but in Ezra one five through eleven, they even let them take the gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar plundered, that Cyrus took, and give it back to the Jews, probably worth millions of dollars or or tens and hundreds of millions. And we talked about this when we talked about the temple. Who does that when they conquer? Nobody. But Cyrus was raised up by God in some respects to have favor on his people and send them back to their homeland. Now check it out. Imagine you're Cyrus and you're conquering and you get to Jerusalem and you go in there and nobody's opposing you because they know you're this mighty empire. You got all your soldiers and horses and archers and lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. And basically you come in and the Jewish leadership basically opens up the scrolls and shows Cyrus his name. And he's, I mean, just imagine his his puzzling. He's puzzled about this. And maybe he he had some of an affinity towards the Hebrews God. Well, how would they even know who I was before I was born and that I was going to conquer Babylon? So you could imagine that he showed favor on the Jews. See, this God that we serve is a powerful God. This God that in American culture where people, even Christians, a lot of times can't make time for God, this is the God we serve. It's my job to tell you how amazing he is, how full of love he is, how full of forgiveness he is, how he can direct our lives, how he can encourage us. It's amazing. You know, and I'm here to encourage us, to help us to understand how great our God And I can't even do it justice. I can't. Verse 5, it says, and as I was considering, <laughs> now just picture poor Daniel. He's seeing this stuff in the future, and he's, he's puzzled. You know, the the visions are so real. They're so alive. Everything that the, the, the ram did has significance. Now, as he's considering it, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, there's an emotion here, attacked the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast them down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one who could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven." This is, this is incredible. Many years after Cyrus, and, and now, the, remember, just like with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar became a man of God, and his successive rulers became increasingly decadent, and God had to deal with Babylon. Same thing with Persia. Cyrus was used to have an affinity toward the Jewish people and send them back, give them a break, let them rebuild their homeland. But there were successive kings after Cyrus that thought they were so great that they wanted worship. They thought they were gods and God had to deal with them. So here comes the male goat. And the male goat is a picture of the Grecian kingdom, right? If we could put the map up, he came from the west. He came from the west. Now, this was the center of the world at the time. You don't see the Tigris and Euphrates, but they run through here, right? Um, the Persian Gulf, the Mediterranean Sea. There's a lot of seas, there's a lot of activity. You know, the scientists and the Bible say that mankind started in this northern African um, uh, Babylonian sort of area, all right? So anthropologists and the Bible agree on the same thing in many ways. And basically, this was the center of the world at the time. So this male goat comes from right about here. He comes from the west. Greece? Who are the Greeks? These these people are probably like, who are the Greeks? Let's just subjugate them. They're not important. They have no significance. So this is more profound for Daniel. Comes from the West, this male goat. Um, Two, he didn't touch the ground. The Greeks under Alexander the Great uh, conquered the known world in 10 years. Remember, no tanks, no aircraft carriers, no airplanes, none of that stuff. Just horseback, you know, walking, marching, conquering. Ten years, they went across the whole face of the Middle East and conquered and they came from all the way in the West. So the male goat doesn't touch the ground. It appears he's almost flying through this conquest. Three, he had a notable horn between his eyes and that was Alexander the Great. The goat is Greece. It attacks the ram. Now this is what happens. Let's let's talk about this because it's very descriptive. The goat attacks the ram, Medo-Persia, breaks its horns, it prevails, it casts the ram to the ground, and that's not enough. It tramples the ram when it's down. It shows the visceral hatred that the Grecians and the Persians had for each other. So it just, I just, God just wows me all the time when I study. God doesn't just tell us what happened. He doesn't just give us the details. He doesn't just name people's names before they were born. He tells you what they were feeling. There was this visceral, deep hatred that the Greeks and the Persians had after a time. There were several long, arduous battles between the two empires, I'll name a few. Thermopylae, a lot of movies were made on this, the Spartans at the Thermopylae Pass held off the Persians, the Battle of Artemisium, the Sea Battle of Salamis, the Greek counterattacks, the wars of the Delian Leagues, and that's just some of them. All this fighting, and many of it before Alexander the Great even took center stage, and the Battle of Marathon. That's where we get the word marathon from, by the way. The city of Marathon in Greece. A major Grecian-Persian battle was fought with a decisive Grecian victory. And the Pheidippides, whether he was real or not, it's written about him running all the way from the battle scene to the Athenians and saying, I think it's Nike, you know, Greek won. Victory, we won, we beat the Persians. So Marathon, you know, a lot of stuff we get today comes from the Bible. And I I just splattered this through my messages over the years. Verse 8, he had a a large horn, the the he-goat, that was broken. Alexander the Great dies. And four notable horns rise up. His diadokoi, or his generals that rose up to take each quarter of the world because Alexander the Great's heirs were killed. Things were just nasty back then, you know. It was all about power. Unfortunately, it's about power today, and different things are done in government. But... Um, his four generals rise up and they take, they quarter the known world into different quadrants, so to speak. But Alexander the Great dies, uh, incidentally, in, in Babylon at the age, I believe, of 33. Uh, he had an illness. He died young. So when he conquered, he was in his 20s. I mean, the guy was, is an interesting figure. Now, just for those of you that are into you know, military and battles and stuff, there was different schools of thought. The Greeks were... Very muscular, they carried shields, they carried heavy equipment, they stood in these, these iron formations, these phalanx formations. And the Persians outnumbered them exponentially, maybe that's an exaggeration, but they also had very light armor and they were quick on their feet. Well, it turned out that the Grecian way of fighting in battle was, was the way that would win. Um, the the, the so called immortals, the Persian immortals, the Greeks just made light, light work of them. The Spartans versus the Immortals—they wiped them out. Um, they just were, and they could fight with this heavy equipment for hours. Talk about CrossFit and you know, well-trained uh, Greeks, and they just—you know—the Persians just couldn't contend with them, even with all their numbers. So eventually, the the ram loses out to the to the he goat. Now, just a, a word on Alexander the Great, because. He's only a great humanist. If you read about him, he was a decadent dude, um, but he was a humanist. He married uh, East and West cultures. He really did bring the East and the West together. Greece, Greece represented the West, and the Middle East and further represented the East. So he married East and West cultures. He actually had his soldiers marry many Eastern women. So he was, he was really um, a globalist before globalism was popular. All right. So this is what he did. He tried to bring the world together. He conquered, then kindly integrated. He unified the world through culture and language. And this is what he did. Now, we see this cadence, if I can stop for a minute, with God allowing, you know, man has free will. He allows empires to rise. And sometimes he'll use leaders to uh, humble other decadent leaders when they become so satanic and so demonic that they have to be, they got to be cleansed judgment has to happen some good leaders arose like Nebuchadnezzar when he became a man of God uh, Cyrus the Persian and check it out these empires had no idea that they were unwittingly before it happened spreading Christianity let's talk about this number one the Grecians spread the Koine Greek which was a very simple language I taught myself it through a tutorial so I could understand biblical Greek it's a very simple language to learn and we use it a lot a lot of our words our roots especially in medicine, you say, oh, Latin. Really, a lot of it comes from Greek roots, uh, the, you know, the, the, the old Greek. So what happened was, Alexander the Great and the Greeks spread the, this simple Koine Greek language through the entire, they had to speak this, right? So everybody's speaking it. Later on, this helped to communicate the gospel. The Bible was written in Koine Greek. And everybody in the Roman Empire, when the Romans took over, understood this language. So they could go anywhere and communicate the gospel. Greeks had no idea that they were doing this, but God's hand was there. Two, the Romans now, after the Greeks built roads, bridges, and they instituted the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. What that did was that helped to deliver the gospel. So the Greeks helped to communicate the gospel. The Romans helped to deliver the gospel. The Apostle Paul used a lot of the Roman roads, which went in straight lines to different cities. It was very easy speaking the Koine Greek, and, and walking on the Roman infrastructure. They had their soldiers, that the troops, that, like the local police, they would march by and make sure they would keep the peace. So he could do this without being... You know, it's pretty impressive, until unfortunately the Roman government turned on the Christians, and then of course persecution started. But Christian missionaries still used their infrastructure for a very long time. Okay, so let's go into verse 9. And out of the one, one of them, or one of the... The horns uh, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. That would be the Jewish sacrifices that were required according to Levitical law. And the place of his sanctuary. Or the temple was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast down, he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. So we have this interesting description. Now remember, we've talked about the little horn when it came to Daniel 7, the Antichrist, this little, this little powerful thing that comes up with eyes and, and a mouth like a man and speaking pompous words. However, we have to understand this little horn a little bit differently, and and the way I like to describe it is I see it in what's called layers or strata. And we're going to be talking about, number one, Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll talk about who he is. Number two, the Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes was in our past. Antichrist is in our future. And Satan, who intertwines the two of them and inspires them and gives them their power. So Antiochus Epiphanes is a prefigurement or a type of the Antichrist. And again, both of these figures, these men, are inspired by the fallen angel and the original rebel, Lucifer. So Antiochus Epiphanes was a cruel tyrant that came out of the Syrian or Seleucid line of the Grecian Empire. Alexander the Great dies. Seleucus takes the Syrian quarter. Under Seleucus, at some point, comes this man who rises up And his name really is Antiochus, but he gives himself the name Epiphanes because Epiphanes means illustrious. So you can already determine what this guy really thinks of himself. You know what I'm saying? I mean, some men, they get so full of themselves that they almost think that they're a god. So his, his name for himself is, I'm Antiochus Illustrious, call me that. And he had the power of his army if you didn't do that. Now, what he did was he often harassed the Egyptian quarter, but Rome was rising in prominence at the time, right around 170, 168 B.C., and the Romans threatened him, you better go back to Syria where you belong because we want Egypt, right? And we'll talk about this, and I think, in Daniel 11. So he goes back to Syria. What do you do when you stand up to a bully? You make them mad. You know, this person who thinks he's a god on earth and he just got, you know, um, told what to do by the Romans. So he goes through Jerusalem, not a fan of the Jews, and he decides to desecrate the temple. This is where the story of Hanukkah comes from. Coincidentally, it's coming up in December. So all this history is real history, and it gives rise to the Hanukkah uh, celebration feast. Now, what Antiochus Epiphanes did was he put an image of Zeus in the temple. He sacrificed a pig, which was an unclean animal, on the altar. Its blood ran through, and it just defiled everything. So the sacrifices had to stop. Now, incidentally, later in John chapter ten, twenty-two through twenty-three, it says this. Now, it it was at the feast of dedication, which is Hanukkah, in 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 Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So, some two hundred years after this event, Jesus actually celebrates Hanukkah. Right? He came to fulfill the law, and he came to um, you know usher in the age of grace. But he still uh, observed a lot of the things that were you know that the Jews observed and one of them was Hanukkah okay so let's go back to this verse 9 the horn grew toward the south which would be Egypt the the east which would be the Syrian quarter and the glorious land which would be Jerusalem Antioch's epiphany covered a lot of distance and made a lot of trouble the antichrist will do the same thing in our future now I don't know about you but I'm reading more and more articles about anti-semitism in Europe I'm reading more and more articles about anti-Semitism in the UN. doesn't matter what Israel does, she's always wrong. And I'm not saying she's always right. Don't get me wrong. Um, For the most part, the country is run by secular people. But there is this persecution, really bad persecution, that's going to come to the Jews in the last days. I'm reading things on our college campuses, demonstrations, very anti-Semitic, really harsh and brutal things said about Jewish people. It's really quite disgusting. So this is going to continue, okay? And it's going to feed this Antichrist in the future, this man who's going to continue it and blame the Jews for everything like Adolf Hitler did. The Germans were brilliant people. Most of our technology comes from German engineering. But he was able to mesmerize them and dupe them into looking at Jews as subhumans, okay? This is going to happen again. Verse 10, it says, "'He will cast down and trample the host or the stars.'" The Antichrist will slaughter the Jewish saints. Antiochus Epiphanes did the same thing. And check out what Satan did with the fallen angels. What did he do with a third of the angels of heaven? Revelation 12.4, it says, The dragon's tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. Jesus said about Lucifer, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he was cast out. So you see a lot of these layers that's the way I can teach this to help make it understandable, these layers or strata, these waves of things that happen, time passes and it happens again. Look at the dictators in the, in the 20th century, 21st century, they're all the same. They're, they're all megalomaniacs, they all think that they're so great, they're so smart, um, they're, they're evil, they hate Christianity and the Bible, right? So you can see a lot of layers. They'll find some group to marginalize, whether race or ethnicity or religion, and it's basically a diversion tactic, so they can start to take over. Interesting. Verses 11 through 12. So the, again, we, we, we've got to start with Antiochus Epiphanes and then move forward up the chain of command of time. Um, because of transgression, the army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this, and he prospered. Antichrist will do the same thing. 2 Thessalonians 2, Matthew 24, Daniel 9, Revelation, it's all in there. Um, Now this is what's really sad is in verse 12, it it said because of transgression. And this is what God often did. He warned the Jewish people from day one, from the get-go, if you follow me, if you worship me, if you teach your kids good things, your crops will grow, your borders will be secure. He had this unique relationship with the nation. If you start worshiping, false gods, demonic idols, you know, sacrifice your kids to Molech, do these horrible things. I'm going to withdraw my protective hand from you. And at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, if you study even Jewish sources, the temple, this, the spiritual system was very corrupt. At the time of Jesus, he also, who did he, um, who did he chastise mostly? I don't remember him yelling at any prostitutes or, or drunkards or thieves, He chastised the religious leaders because they were corrupt, right? And then what happened? Well, Antiochus Epiphanes was able to take over because of really decadent, um, morally corrupt and bankrupt, supposedly God's people. A.D. 66 through 70, the Roman Jewish wars, Titus was able to get through Jerusalem, the walls, and destroy the temple and trample it down to the ground. Same thing. And Jesus prophesied these things. So again, we're looking at this stuff in layers. Now, this is something that the prosperity gospel won't teach you, that God allows his people to be judged at times. In the New Testament, in 1 Peter 4, it says we're told that judgment starts in the house of God. Brothers and sisters, that means us too. It doesn't mean that necessarily we're going to get invaded, or that anything that bad happens to us is... A result of him punishing us, but I think sometimes we forget that there is chastisement because God wants us to be a good example to the world. He wanted the Jews to be a good example. He wants Christians to be a good example. And i got to tell you this: when something goes wrong in my life, the first thing I do is I get alone with God and I say, "Okay, you got my attention." Without fail, ask my wife. I'll be like, "I'm going outside. <laughs> I'm going to go somewhere, um, and just where I, it's very rural where I live, and and I love it." And I just say, all right, Lord, you got my attention. What are you trying to show me? Now, it doesn't mean that he's picking on me or he's trying to He's not. He's trying to correct behavior. And Christians, we need to be open to that. If we're a bad witness to our, our workplace, our families, etc., God will correct us. Right? And it's something that we need to consider. Everything from the pulpit is not supposed to be fluff and warm and, and uplifting. Sometimes it needs to be convicting. So it's a wake-up call. Verse 13, it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, most likely angels, or angels speaking to each other, and one holy one said to... Remember, Daniel's in this vision. He's trying to make the best of all this stimuli that's around him. He's seeing stuff, he's hearing voices, and as we'll look at the end in these chapters, Daniel gets sick, right? And we'll talk about that physiologically, but... He says, I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? Angels are, angels are only given as much information as God wants to give them. Sometimes they know a lot, sometimes they don't. Sometimes some know and they pass it on to others. The giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Let me get through this mathematical Difficult stuff, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. But, you know, our life is an open book. Everything we do, sometimes we, we try to, um, I don't know, even sometimes it happens in church. You put on a show, put on a facade, and maybe we can fool people, but we can't fool God. There's stuff going on right in this room, right outside that we can't see. There's a whole spiritual realm that I submit to you is the real world. We're just made up of a bunch of atoms that can be pulled apart you know, through nuclear fission and it just becomes a big fireball. Whether it's in this pulpit or in my body or your body, this is just the body God gave us to be able to negotiate this world. right? When we die, the carbon and the hydrogen and all the different elements that make us up, if we're left out in a field somewhere, it's kind of gross, but we basically go back into the ground. Maybe, maybe nourish some plants and animals eat it. So it's this kind of cycle of life, but the difference is we have a soul, we have a spirit which makes us eternal. But too many pe- people and even believers are putting their stock in this world. And this world is not going to last forever, it's all going to burn, the Bible tells us. So, that being said, there's your encouraging message for the, for the morning. <laughs> so, basically, uh, when, when it says 2300 days, the Hebrew word actually means morning evenings. So Bible scholars are divided. Is it 2,300 literal days or half days? And I, I kind of I go with the half day period. is a roughly 360-day year calendar, which means that the Earth's trajectory around the sun um, has changed over the years, and science tells us that. Planets can slow down, speed up, depend on uh, things that are having, happening in the cosmos. So when you put it all together, if you look at December 168 B.C., Antiochus came in, he brought in the image of Zeus, he slaughtered the pig on the altar, he stopped the sacrifices. Many of the the Jews were killed and went to Judas Maccabeus where we get the Maccabees from, Judas the Hammer. He he develops a contingent of Jewish warriors, they defeat the Syrian army, they they retake the temple, cleanse it and rededicate it, it must have been messy after how Antiochus left it, and that ended in 165 BC, about three and a half years for this to happen. It will also take three and a half years for the Antichrist to be defeated from the time he breaks the covenant with the Jewish people in our future in Israel and he desecrates the temple. Okay, And the Lord comes back in his second coming. It's a three and a half year period. I want to read this to you in Matthew 24 starting in verse 15. Jesus now in the first century is referring back to Daniel. However, Antiochus has already passed. He's speaking of a future time. Remember the layers we spoke about. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, this abominable thing, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads this, let him understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those, those who are pregnant. And those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as, not, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now, Luke tells about a time. Jesus speaks more about this. And he speaks about when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem. Here's what's interesting, AD 66 through 70, the Roman Jewish wars, Jewish and, you know, Jewish believers and Jews in general who who read this were actually spared from the Romans coming into Jerusalem, destroying everything, slaughtering people, breaking down the temple, literally trampling through the holy place, but that's another layer. The next layer will be in our future. How long it is? I don't know. I'm not one of these kooky guys that predicts the ends of the world. The end of the world will be, but God hasn't given it to me, you, or anybody else to know it. He wants us to live according to his ways, and when he's ready, he'll take care of it. So that's, that's what you have going on. As I, I find sometimes my life is a living sermon. I'm, I'm studying this, and my wife and I are in a waiting room, and I see a gentleman who's got the yarmulke, and the way he's dressed, he's an Orthodox Jew, and he's on his phone, and I'm like, so... Uh, when does Hanukkah fall on this year? And he looks up and he goes, what, what? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, you caught me off guard. So it was so cool. I have a, I'm having a, you know, I always try to point people to God. I said, you know, I'm studying the book of Daniel and we're going through Antiochus Epiphanies and we actually had a pleasant conversation and then my wife kicks in and she starts talking to the wife and uh, this is what we do, brothers and sisters. You know, he wasn't arrogant. He actually was very receptive You know, the book of Daniel. I said, your neck of the woods back in the Old Testament. You know what I'm saying? So it was cool, you know, that's what, just to love people. You know, I see a guy sitting there. Is he just religious or does he have a relationship with the Lord? And I just, I was compelled. I couldn't help myself. My, I just, my mouth, it's probably too much. But in this time, my mouth, my mouth opened for a good reason. Uh, All right, we'll continue. Verse 15. Now it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Angel, you know, again, this is Daniel's best bet of describing something. If you were him, you would do the best you could not to blaspheme and say something that wasn't true. Who who am I talking to? And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, who's a, a mighty angel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep, my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time, the end shall be. So Daniel is, again, he's, he's visited by Gabriel. You know, today people are so careless about, um, you know, in Paul's day, the Apostle Paul spoke about the foolish worship of angels. People do that today, too. They look at angels as if they're, they're God, and they're not. They just do God's bidding, and they're not fluffy, cuddly creatures. They're mighty creatures. Uh, one angel slew 185,000 of the Assyrian army in the Old Testament. There, so Daniel was, was smart. He saw the angel coming to him, and he, maybe he wasn't sure what was going to happen. And it, you know, he, I don't know, maybe panicked or fainted, and the angel touches him and says, no, come on, we've got to talk. You've got you to be awake for this. You've you got to write this stuff down afterwards. I just, this is, I just love this stuff. So he basically says, uh, well, he speaks about the latter time of the indignation. In the future, Israel as we know it, And I'm going to interject my spin on it, or what I think. I think they're just so tired of of buses blowing up. They're tired of the people getting stabbed. They're tired of their synagogues being attacked. They're tired of trying to stop missiles from coming in and the Iron Dome system trying to stop them. Israel will do what she feels she needs to do for a politician who's going to come in and say, I'm going to make peace. Really? Really? And I think that according to the scripture, the Israeli leadership is going to go along with this person, but he's going to deceive them. Okay? And, and really put their weight behind this man who's, who's in a, a filthy abomination spiritually. And Israel will go through one last time of mortifying or humbling before the Lord comes and rescues them. Okay? Verse 20. The ram which you saw having the two horns, which we know... They are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. I can picture Daniel going, who's Greece? You know, the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So the four generals of Alexander, uh, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, and Lysimachus all took a quadrant, but they didn't have the gumption that Alexander had and a lot of times towards the end they started fighting with border issues. Right. Verse 23 and in the latter times of the kingdom when the transgressors have reached their fullness a king shall arise having fierce features who understand sinister schemes his power shall be mighty but not by his own power he shall destroy fearfully and they and shall prosper and thrive he shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people Through his cunning, he shall cause the seed to prosper under his hand. He shall magnify himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without human hand. And the vision of the evening and the mornings, which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Antiochus Epiphanes, the fulfillment. Our future, Antichrist, the fulfillment. Why so much about the Antichrist? Well, in Revelation 6, the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first rider is the rider on the white horse. He comes with this Messiah-like appearance. However, the first rider will deceive the nations into following him. And then, of course, the red, fiery war and, and, and death and, and all these other horses that follow. Now, I'm going to read to you, and I don't do this normally, but the Living Bible has a paraphrase, and I actually like their paraphrase. So if if you're struggling with the verbiage, let me just read 23 through 25 in the Living Bible. Toward the end of their kingdoms, when they have become morally rotten, an angry king shall rise to power with great shrewdness and intelligence. His power shall be mighty, but it will be satanic strength and not his own prospering wherever he turns he will destroy all o- all those who oppose him though their armies be mighty and he will devastate god's people he will be a, for a time by the way he will be a master of deception defeating many by catching them off guard as they bask in false security we really need to pay attention to what's going on in the middle east because that's where it's all going to end We have to get out of our Western bubble and what the American media is trying to spoon-feed us and really see what's going on in the world. Without warning, he will destroy them. So great will he fancy himself to be that he will even take on the prince of princes in battle. Jesus Christ, Revelation 19. But in so doing, he will seal his own doom, for he shall be broken by the hand of God, though no human means could overpower him. This describes a future leader that the world will love and fawn over. Every major media outlet will say, Re- uh, Revelation 13, who is like the beast? Who is like whatever, John Smithers, whatever his name is, or you know, Jeff Smith, or whatever the guy's name is. They're going to fawn over this guy. Isn't he the best? Look, world peace. Look, he's feeding the poor, and then he's going to deceive the world and, and get them when they're basking in their false security. That is the leader that this world and this country will come to love, most people. But Revelation 19, the Lord will smite him. It will only go on for a time. Verse 27. By the way, those were fictitious names. I'm not not predicting anything. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. The Apostle John has the same effect if you read Revelation. He falls down twice at the feet of the angel. He's so overwhelmed by this, this stimuli, you know, sight and sound. Talk about sight and sound theater. I mean, this was a sight and sound that will blow your doors off. It elicited emotional response. In physiology, that's known as, if you've ever heard of it, vasovagal syncope. Stimuli is so overwhelming that it affects the body physically through fainting or dropping blood pressure, I love to take the Bible and make it digestible. Physiology is not here, biology, genetics, geography, politics. And imagine this book was written 2,500 years ago. Angels are not around to entertain us. Angels are mighty. They do God's bidding. And at times they tell us things that he wants to know. But it's not something to desire a visit from an angel. The Apostle Paul warned against that. So what do we have here when we look at this? Well, we're going to talk about the rapture next Sunday, the next two Sundays. And it's going to be basically how the Lord calls his people home before all these horrible things happen in the book of Revelation. Not everybody believes in that theory, but I will tell you this, that as a new believer, I read a book by a Jewish theologian, and he wrote a book. uh, It was Daniel, God's Man in Babylon. I read that like 15 or so years ago. When a Jewish believer writes a book about the Jewish prophecies, I tell you what, there's a whole picture, there's a whole angle that you get that you don't always get by regular people who are just trying to translate it. And basically, it's the 70 weeks of Daniel, 69 have passed, one is yet to come, and that will be our near future, but it has to do with the Jewish people. So you'll have to stick around till next Sunday to find that. But a few things. Number one, this was important to the Jews because they were going to have to deal with Antiochus Epiphanes. And possibly Daniel's prophecy prepared some of the Jewish zealots to have a check in their spirit to prepare themselves because this coming lunatic of a leader was going to cause them a lot of heartache. In many ways, too, it was a warning to the Jewish people to get right with God. God said that all throughout the Old Testament. Two, this is important to the church who God knew of, but Daniel had no idea at the time he was writing. If you ask Daniel, who's the church? He'd be like, who? What are you talking about? It was a new work that God was doing that Daniel didn't know about yet. But even in the Roman Empire, the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel gave God's people comfort when they knew that they were being persecuted by the Roman leadership. 1 John, I want to read this to you, 1 verse, two eighteen. The Apostle John, speaking to believers, says, Little children, a term of endearment. It is the last hour, and as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. But even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Remember, layers that we spoke about. A lot of Antichrist pretypes, but the true Antichrist, the quintessential one, will come in our near future. So it was very important for the Christians to be comforted, knowing but, but the Lord is in control. Three. It's important. Is going to be again. I'm going this in in chronological order: the Jews at Daniel's time, the church afterwards, the Jews after the church is removed, and Israel, knowing that when that last Shabuah in Hebrew, that last seven-year period takes place, that those left behind. We'll be very wary of politicians who come and talk a good talk, very charismatic, and are trying to lead the Israelites into a false sense of security. Some people will be prepared. Some people will read the Bible, and they will be edified, and they'll be protected. Four, lastly, 2015, the church in America. It gives us a perspective check. There's a lot of teachings out there. As Christians, our mission in life is not to go around playing all the time. It's not to go around prioritizing God on the last. You know, Oh, I'll get to prayer. Oh, well, I'll get to reading. Oh, well, I'll get to going to church. God is always last. And, you know, and the American dream sometimes has, has, stiffly competes with the things of God. And sometimes the American dream, sadly enough, in Christians' lives, wins. And that's really sad. Remember the God that we spoke about. He is awesome. He is mighty. He is he's encouraging. He's full of love. He's full of forgiveness. We need to put him at the top. Our country has lost its spiritual compass and much of cultural Christianity has lost that as well. Hopefully, the more we dwell into Daniel's prophecies, the more we come here for 35 minutes and go really deep into his word, the more it'll put our life and our God and our relationship with him in perspective because he is an awesome God. Let's pray.